James chapter 3. Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. For we all stumble in many ways. And if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man, able also to bridle his whole body. If we put bits into the mouths of horses so that they obey us, we guide their whole bodies as well. Look at the ships also. Though they are so large and are driven by strong winds, they are guided by a very small rudder wherever the will of the pilot directs. So also, the tongue is a small member, yet it boasts of great things. How great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire. And the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, straining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life, and set on fire by hell. For every kind of beast and bird, of reptile and sea creature, can be tamed and has been tamed by mankind. But no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil, full of deadly poison. With it, we bless our Lord and Father, and with it, we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My brothers, these things ought not to be so. Does a spring pour forth from the same opening both fresh and salt water? Can a fig tree, my brothers, bear olives? Or a grapevine produce figs? Neither can a salt pond yield fresh water. Who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exists, there will be disorder and every vile practice. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. And a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the scripture says, he yearns jealously over the spirit that he is made to dwell in us, but he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. 
Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourself before the Lord, and he will exalt you. Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. The one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. There is only one lawgiver and one judge, he who is able to save and destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? We've been going through the book of James, and uh, we've got quite a long passage this morning, but it begins with this verse that preachers really don't want it to begin with. Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. Wow, okay, that puts a bit of pressure on. Um, Let's pray then as uh, we begin. God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Heavenly Father, we humble ourselves before your words this morning. Lord, would you speak to us? Would you change our hearts and make us like your son, Jesus? Amen. Last time, if you can remember back to last Sunday, uh, we saw that James was picking out three areas, three big areas of inconsistency uh, in the Christian life, uh, that, in the Christians that he's um, writing to. And they were found in chapter 1, verses 26 and 27. And they act as a kind of uh, headline for the rest of the letter. The first area that he focused on was the, our attitude to the poor and the needy among us. And we saw that last time out. But there are another two areas where our conduct does not match up to the life that God desires for us. And these two areas coincide in our passage this morning. James is going to reveal to us a massive problem. Let me ask you a question. What destroys a church? What destroys a church, a local church like this one? Well, there's a few answers that you might give. One is persecution. Some people would say that. And it may be the case that a church will cave under the pressure of persecution and be destroyed. But James has actually shown us that persecution, along with other kinds of trials, may actually strengthen a church as Christian people persevere under them. Another answer as to what destroys a church might be false teaching, heresy, people teaching the wrong things about God or teaching the wrong things about how we're saved. That can destroy a church, certainly. And the New Testament has got lots to say uh, to warn us about false teaching. But of all the New Testament letters, James probably says the least about false teaching. So persecution, false teaching, they're big dangers, big New Testament dangers to a church. But there's one more thing that can destroy a church. And it's a thing that's so small, but so deadly. So deadly that churches throughout the centuries have come crashing down because of it. We all have one. We all use it every day, although some of us use it more than others. And this tiny little thing has within it the deadly potential 
to wreck a gospel church like Chalmers? What is it? Well, you know the answer because we've read the passage already. It's the tongue. James says that the tongue can burn this church to the ground. I've got quite a long passage this morning, as you, as you will have picked up. We're going to move at quite a pace um, through it. We're going to try to extract three key principles, and they're there on the service sheets, um, or if you're on the YouTube link, you can click the little triangle and it will take you to this. Uh, and uh, the, these three big principles that we'll see as we go through. But before that, just to, to give you the, the flavour of the, what's the connecting idea of the whole of this section? Uh, we know it's a section from chapter 3, verse 1 to 4, verse 12, because it starts and ends with the same topic. And so the connecting idea is this. Wicked speech comes from worldly hearts and leads to war in the church. Okay, so three W's, you can remember. Wicked speech comes from worldly hearts and leads to war in the church. And James wants us to see that danger really clearly. And then as we see that danger, he wants us to turn from it and turn to a better way. So here we go, the explosive trigger of war in the church that is the tongue. Sticks and stones may break my bones, but how does it finish? Words will never hurt me. So says the child in the playground. But we all know that that's just a load of rubbish, isn't it? Of course words hurt us. Words are powerful. And actually, our government believes this. So regardless of whether you think a hate speech bill is a good idea or not, personally, I don't think it's a good idea, but regardless of whether you think it's a big idea or not, a good idea or not, the fact that there is one being proposed in government at the moment reveals that actually we know that words are powerful and we know that words are potentially destructive to a society. Now, you know this personally too, I'm sure. I'm sure you've had people say nasty things about you or to you, and you know how damaging that can be to a relationship. And in fact, the closer the relationship, the more damaging those nasty words can be. If they come from a father or a child or a spouse, or if it's a brother or sister saying those nasty things, well, those barbs, they cut a bit deeper, don't they? This is our experience. We've all, we've all been on the receiving end of these things. But James doesn't want us to think about others who speak such things to us or about us. He wants us to look at ourselves and our own speech towards others. Now let's see how this begins, first one. Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. He begins with teachers, I think, because, well, they're the people who speak the most in church. People like me and Robin, people like the others on the preaching team. People like our small group leaders, who we had a great training day yesterday. Those kind of people, and youth leaders and children's workers, 
people who teach. He says, this is going to be an acute issue for you because the nature of that privileged role means that you will be held uh, held to account by God and by others for what you say. Now, if you're a parent, you know that to be true as well. If you've ever um, told your kids not to do something, you'll know that when they catch you doing that very thing, they'll show you no mercy. Begins with those who teach. The main tool of their ministry is the thing that's going to get them into trouble. But James goes on, and it's not just teachers. We all stumble in many different ways, he says. But there's one way in which we all stumble. None of us can keep under control that tiny little muscle called the tongue. Verse 2. For we all stumble in many ways, and if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he's a perfect man, able also to bridle his whole body. And then he follows it up with two illustrations to show just how powerful that little muscle is. Verse 3, if we put bits into the mouths of horses so that they obey us, we guide their whole bodies as well. Look at the ships also, though they are so large and are driven by strong winds, they're guided by a very small rudder, wherever the will of the pilot directs. So also the tongue is a small member, yet it boasts of great things. Such a great impact from something so small, that's the point. And the tongue, of course, has power to impact for good, for real good, doesn't it? Teaching God's word, for example, can result in eternal salvation for those who hear it and receive it with faith. But for all its power to do good, it has perhaps even more power to destroy. Second part of verse 5. How great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire. And the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life, and set on fire by hell. For every kind of beast and bird, of reptile and sea creature, can be tamed, and has been tamed by mankind. But no human being can tame the tongue It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. Very vivid pictures and imagery, isn't it? Just think back to the beginning of the year. Remember those Australian wildfires? Or even today, I saw on the news, there's a Californian wildfire going on. The destruction that those things wreak on a a country or even a continent. How are they started? Well, just one spark on some dry grass. And that's all it takes. The untamable tongue has an explosive power to destroy. And that has, first of all, personal implications for each of us. Look at verse 6. The tongue is set among our members, that's the other parts of our body, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life, and set on fire by hell. What we say, the wicked speech, the gossip, the slander, the hateful words that come out of our mouths, the criticism that we make, they can set the course of our life. We can become that person. 
And they can even decide our eternal destiny. Now we sometimes use the phrase, you are what you eat. Well, James would say, you are what you speak. And our failure to control what we speak brings judgment from God. No other part of our body does such damage to us as the tongue. But more than damage to us as individuals, listen to what comes next, verse 9. With the tongue we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My brothers and sisters, these things ought not to be so. So for all the damage that it does to us individually, James's real point is the damage that it does to the church. The damage that the tongue does to the church. See, he sets it in a, in a, con- a context of worship. He says, look, you turn up on Sunday to church and you sing the songs when we can sing songs and you declare how wonderful God is and then over Sunday lunch you badmouth your brothers and sisters who are in the likeness of God precious to him. You curse them. That curse word means something like badmouth them. You slander them. You criticize them. Judge them. Speak evil of them. That phrase is there later on in chapter 4, verse 11. And this, for James, is what he sees as the big inconsistency that the people he's writing to are showing. James had already said in chapter 1, verse 26, if anyone thinks he's religious and doesn't bridle his tongue, but deceives his heart, that person's religion is worthless. And this is what they're doing. They're using their tongues for double purposes, opposite purposes, for evil as well as good. And that is as incompatible in the Christian life as getting salt and fresh water out of the same spring, or as olives growing on fig trees, or as figs growing on grapevines. Now, many a church has burned to the ground because of a pattern of criticism among the body of believers. In fact, many churches today are blowing up because of this kind of critical speech among the membership. And if you think about it, just in our cultural moment where we're at as a society, it's it's really easy to criticise, isn't it? It's almost become our sort of favourite national pastime. You just have to look at Twitter for a moment, if you dare. And it's never easier to criticise than when you're under pressure. I wonder if you found that in your life. When things are are getting on top of you, then your, your tongue starts to lash out, doesn't it? And here we are under a global pandemic... The sparks begin with just one person talking to just one person in a negative way about someone else in the church. The smoke starts to rise just over a conversation in a small group or in a ministry team meeting about a church leader. The flames are kindled over conversation after the service as you're standing outside by the poles. Or often, perhaps, 
in the bedroom at night as the husband and wife, they talk together about that person who annoys them so much. And the fire alarms really start going off when you send that critical 10-point email that explains in detail what the church is doing wrong. This kind of stuff is going on in many churches. And we mustn't think that it can't happen here. Chalmers is no different to any other church. All it would take is just a little spark to get things going. The tongue is an explosive trigger of war in the church. But James doesn't stop there, does he? He wants us to see that though the tongue is the trigger, it's not actually the cause. It's our second point. The real cause of the war in the church is not the tongue, but the human heart. Jesus Christ famously said in the Gospels, that out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. What we say is the key indicator of the spiritual condition of our hearts. Nothing we say isn't already in our hearts to begin with. And that principle is picked up by James in several places throughout this passage. Let me just draw your attention to them. He's already, uh, we already looked at one. He's used that language of our speech as kind of coming out of something, so as water pouring forth from a, a source, a spring, or as fruit which comes from a plant. But look a bit further on, chapter 3, verse 14. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. See the connection, heart and speech, boasting and, and lying. Of chapter 4, verse 12, what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war where? Within you. You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. See, harsh criticism and slander and judgmental commentary, they don't come from nowhere. They have a source, they have a, a cause. And that cause, says James, is the worldliness of our hearts. When we see this kind of destructive speech, or rather when we hear this kind of destructive speech coming out of our mouths, we can know that our hearts are still worldly. I'll just think for a moment about the child in the nursery. Little Jimmy, uh, he's playing with that red and yellow bubble card. Remember those? Everyone, every child who grew up in the 80s, I think, had one of those. And Jimmy, he's, he's very happy going along in his car. He's had it for quite a while. And then he gets out for a minute because someone's offering around the jammy dodgers. And he wants one of those, uh, they probably don't do that anymore, it's fruit now, isn't it, that they offer. Um, but he goes and gets it, and as he does, little Jenny sees her opportunity. And she jumps in the car, and she drives off. What does Jimmy do? Well, he yells, doesn't he? That's mine! He runs over, 
biscuit still in one hand, and he tries to wrestle Jenny out of the car. He's got no thought for her well-being. He throws her to the floor. He jumps in the car, and he leaves Jenny crying. And then what does Jenny do? Well, she screams, I hate you. And so the fight begins again. These things are all there in us from the beginning, aren't they? And as we grow up, well, our fights become about different things, but really they're no different. We're jealous of others, and so we're nasty about them, and we lie about them, we slander them. We're ambitious, so what we try to do is to criticise others, to put them down, all the while boasting about ourselves to raise ourselves up. And we find that like little Jimmy and little Jenny, that others have what we want, and we feel that they're stopping us from getting what we want, and so we snap and we bite and we fight them for it. When we behave like this, says James, we show that our hearts are worldly. Our hearts are just like those around us. In fact, he says even worse than that, we're playing into Satan's hands. Verse 13 to 16. Have another look at that, those verses. Who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from, the, from above, but is earthly, worldly, unspiritual, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder and every vile practice. Satan wants nothing more than to destroy a local church. And this is how he does it so often. Through wicked speech coming from worldly hearts, leading to war in the church. And that's a pretty miserable picture, isn't it, so far? Why is James saying this to us? Is it just to condemn us? No, it's to save us, isn't it? He says this because he loves the people that he's writing to and he wants them to turn from it and find a better way to find the better way of peace, which comes from wisdom from above. That's our third uh, principle here. The solution that he offers began in verse 13, where he says what we need is wisdom, or the, the meekness of wisdom, he calls it. Now, for those of you who've been with us through the whole series of James, you'll have uh, perhaps remembered that in chapter 1, we heard wisdom mentioned before, in chapter 1, we, we saw that what, it, what wisdom was, was uh, when we ask God to help us to make godly choices, he gives us his wisdom. It's a wisdom of meekness. And this wisdom doesn't come from within us, from our own worldly hearts. It comes from outside of us. It's a gift from God to us, from above the wisdom that comes from God stands in contrast to the worldly, demonic wisdom that comes from our own hearts. See that in verse 17 and 18. 
But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. So it's utterly different, isn't it, from the kind of infighting, warring speech uh, that's going on. God's wisdom, given by his spirit through his word, it changes the heart to make it a heart like Jesus' heart, with all these qualities. And as God changes our hearts to become like Christ's, so then our speech and its effects change along with it. A harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. Now this is really critical for us to understand. What we need is not merely to stop, to sort of try and stop saying bad things. In fact, James has made it clear that we can't do that, didn't he, in the first few verses. He told us that we can't control the tongue, that only a perfect man could do that. Only one man in history has ever kept rain on his tongue. The perfect man, Jesus Christ. And how could he do that? Well, he could do that because his heart was aligned with the heart of God the Father and not with the world. But we're not like him. What we need is a changed heart. We need God's wisdom to go to work in us through his spirit so that our hearts might become like his heart like the heart of the perfect man. And as our hearts change, so will then our speech. If you want to be godly in your speech, you need to ask God to change your heart. And when that happens, you might, start, uh, you might stop starting fires with your tongue and instead start putting them out. You might start using your tongue to heal rather than to hurt. You might bring a harvest of peace to a church rather than the fires of war. Isn't that the kind of person that you want to be? Wouldn't it be good to be a peacemaker rather than a war maker, if that's a word? What will it take to get us there? What will it take to get us to become the kind of person whose tongue is brought under control? Well, there's a truth in these last few verses that we need to hear that we will never get that wisdom that will change our hearts. We'll never ask for it. We'll never even want to ask for it if we remain resolutely proud. So you don't go to the mechanic unless you admit that you can't fix the car yourself. You don't go to the barber unless you confess that you made a mess of your DIY haircut over lockdown. You won't go to God and ask him to change you until you humble yourself and admit that you've got it wrong and admit that you can't change yourself. This is where James leaves us, chapter 4, verses 4 and 5. You adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us? It's both a challenge and an encouragement. A challenge that you, are, you can be an enemy of God 
because of your speech. But what an encouragement. He longs for you. He longs for you to return to him in your heart. Just like a spurned husband who still deeply loves his wife and wants her back, he longs for you to return and repent. When we return to him, what do we receive? Do we receive his judgment like we deserve? No. We receive his grace. Verse 6. He gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. What shall we do then? Verse 7. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Notice that second reference to the devil there. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. Here's the choice James leaves us with. Remain proud. That's one option. Remain worldly in your thinking, in your attitude, in your desires. But what you'll find is you'll end up in opposition to God. You'll make yourself his enemy if you make war in his church with your tongue. But here's option two. Turn to him in humility Come back to him in your hearts. Be deeply sorry for your wicked speech and your worldly hearts. Be sorry for the large wars and the minor skirmishes that you've created. And when you do that, when you repent, you will encounter his grace. The grace of the cross. The grace of the communion table. If you do that, he will not reject you. Instead, you will discover his forgiveness and he'll grant you his wisdom, beginning the process of transforming your heart to be like his son, Jesus. Then we will find that our tongues are used for his purposes to bring a harvest of peace. Is that what you want? That's what I want. Let's pray. God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Heavenly Father, as we've heard these words from your book today, we, we confess that we have committed the sins that this passage describes. Our speech has often been wicked, that we have gossiped and slandered and criticised and been judgmental and spoken evil of our brothers and sisters. We come to you and we confess that to you. We know that we deserve your judgment and yet we hear that when we come to Christ we receive his grace. Oh Lord, we thank you so much for that and we ask that you would change our hearts, grant us your wisdom which changes our speech that we might become people who speak words that are peaceable and gentle, that we might be open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere.
Lord, we long to be a people who sow a harvest of peace, of peace and righteousness. So we, cha- we ask that you change us in your mercy. Amen.